0: Hi everyone. Uh, we come to John chapter 2 today. I don't think I've ever preached a sermon. I don't think I've even led a Bible study on John chapter 2 before, which is strange in uh, the years of ministry. But uh, So yeah, I guess you're a guinea pig in that way, uh, as you hear me preach on this passage for the first time. Uh, it's a great passage, a wonderful joy. Let's pray as we come to it. Our gracious Father, please, as we read your word now, help us to rejoice Uh, in who Jesus is, reveal him to us, that we might understand him clearly, be convicted of who he is, have faith in him, believe, and so have life in him, uh, and live life serving him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing that you don't want to do in life is misread signs. Uh, What is a sign? A sign, what does a sign do? A sign points you from itself to the reality that it's actually trying to get you to see so the sign is not the reality it's not the thing it points you to the reality or the thing uh, unless it doesn't do a good job of that Uh, this week news headlines have featured this unclear sign Uh, apparently at the new I haven't driven this sign did anyone drive through this new interchange this week maybe Yep. a few people Uh, The new Roselle interchange has this sign, apparently it's very unclear, apparently it caused a lot of traffic jams and headaches this week, the government has promised to fix it uh, very quickly. Uh, There's another sign I read this week which I thought was rather unclear, I didn't really point you to the reality, or hopefully it wasn't pointing to the reality. Um, You don't want to misread this sign, I think it's meant to say people slash children are eating in this area, not people are eating children. In this area, that would be not a nice reality that that sign would be pointing to. Uh, but that's a sign you definitely don't want to misread. Uh, what you read on a sign matters how you read it. It changes the course of your life, doesn't it? If you misread a sign, or if a sign is not clear, uh, it impacts many things. Today, we start our summer series in the John's Gospel, and we're thinking about the signs. That happened in John's Gospel. This is what we're going to be thinking about over December and January. We'll have uh, Christmas in the middle to think about the wonder of Jesus coming into our world and his birth. Uh, But every other week we'll be dipping into the Gospel of John and thinking about some of the key miracles of Jesus. So you can see uh, there's kind of some symbols of each one there on the screen. We'll see Jesus turn water into wine. We'll see him heal the sick. And make a lame man walk. We'll see him multiply bread and fish. We'll see him walk on water and heal a blind man. And finally, we'll see him raise Lazarus from the grave. These are the big miracles that John wants to show us. Uh, But the thing about John's Gospel is that he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, when they talk about Jesus' miracles, they use words like miracles and wonders or power. But in John's Gospel, the Apostle John prefers to call them Jesus' signs. Why does he call them signs? Well, he wants us to know that these miracles point us to something. They reveal something about Jesus to us. They show us his glory. They're not simply party tricks. There's more to them. Then it first meets the eye. And John, he actually tells us this outright. John just says straight up why he's writing his gospel. Have a look at John 20 on the screens. This is just after the greatest sign. Jesus is risen from the dead. He appears. He shows them his hands and feet. And then John says this Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written, these signs that we're going to look at. These are written why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. John has written down these signs. Why? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's promised King, the one with all authority, the one that was long awaited for, and that he's also the Son of God, the one and only Son of God who reveals God to us. He doesn't want you to think, you see, he doesn't want you to think that Jesus was just a good man. He doesn't want you to think Jesus makes people a bit nicer or a bit more moral, although people these days might say the opposite to that. He doesn't want you to be a more spiritual person, whatever that might mean to you. He doesn't want you to think that Jesus is just one good way to be spiritual and that there are other good ways to be spiritual. There isn't. That would be to misread Jesus' signs. He doesn't even want you just to believe facts about Jesus, that he lived and died and rose again. The demons believe that. No, he wants you to be gripped by Jesus, to put your faith, your trust in him, to rest all of your life on him. That's what it means to believe. It's not merely intellectual assent. It's not having a Christian heritage or a church affiliation. John is saying, here is the one who can turn water into wine, Here is the one who can make a lame man walk. Here is the one who can raise the dead. Here is the one who laid down his life and took it up again. He wants you to believe, to be utterly convinced, sold out for Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He wants you to believe because when you believe, that's how you are saved. That's how you receive life, he says. He says, I've written so that you may believe in Jesus and by believing you might have life in his name. Now what is that life he's talking about? He's talking about true spiritual life, eternal life. John defines it as knowing the one true God who made you and knowing him as your father. Eternal life is knowing God, the source of life, and knowing his son now and knowing him into eternity. And so as you read these signs of Jesus, as we see what they point to about Jesus, you can come alive. You can be brought from death to life as you see his glory and who he is and put your trust in him. And if you are already alive in Jesus, if you've been born again, if you already believe and have life in Jesus, well, you can take encouragement and joy again that you have that life in Jesus. You can stand again in wonder and awe at who Jesus is and that in him you have life eternal. So we'll be thinking about these seven signs of Jesus in John's Gospel. We'll think about what each sign points us to about Jesus. We're going to try and not misread the signs. We've got to think about them. And it will give us a chance again to see Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. If we believe in him, we have life in him. Do you want that? Maybe one person wants that. We want that, don't we? We want life in Jesus' name. And so today, we come to the passage of the wedding at Cana, the sign of Jesus turning water into wine. So come with me. We're going to look at the story. It's not a long story, but it shows us wonderfully something about Jesus, many things about Jesus. So have a look at verse 1 with me. We learn there where this wedding is and who is there. Verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Now, as far as we know, Cana was this teeny tiny village very close to Nazareth, where Jesus grew up and where he still lived at this point. And we don't get to meet the happy couple of the wedding, but we do get to meet some of the guests. So look at verse 1 again. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Now, this is important, because this is the first time we meet Mary, Jesus' mum, and we learn about their relationship. But did you notice Jesus also has his disciples there? Now, that that might kind of sound a bit weird that Jesus brought a whole crowd of disciples and and crashed a wedding. Uh, That's not what's happening because at this point, Jesus doesn't have a crowd of disciples. This is so early, he hasn't even kicked off his public ministry yet. So it would have been just four or five men following Jesus. But there they are at this wedding, eating, drinking, celebrating for many days And then they face a problem, trouble strikes, disaster hits this wedding. Have you ever had a dinner party disaster? I'm sure you've got many stories up your sleeve. Uh, Me and Sarah, we have a few good stories. Uh, We almost had one this week. Uh, This week we had our 630 Church Gospel Team leaders over to our house for dinner and to, to wrap up the year. And what happened? Well, we planned to cook chicken in the oven and potatoes in the oven. Maybe some of you can already think where this is going. Uh, we put all the chicken in the oven, and then what do we realize? There is no room left in the oven. The oven is full. We couldn't fit the potatoes, so we couldn't cook them. Uh, we boiled them, but we couldn't make them crispy and crunchy and delicious as they should be. Uh, the meal was going to be served super late. Uh, But with some creative thinking and with the help of Avril, who ducked to the shops on the way there for us, thank you to Avril, uh, the the day was saved because, again, can you think of what we did? We converted the potatoes into potato salad and everything was saved. We were only a little bit late (laughs) to serve dinner. Now, the worst case scenario for us would have been that we served dinner late and people went a little bit hungry for an hour-ish, something like that. But not so with this wedding. Look at verse 3. The wine runs out. And this is a massive deal. Wine, it's seen in many cultures, even our culture today, as this essential part of celebration. And it would bring great shame on the family to not provide for their guests. It would basically bring an abrupt ending to the wedding and everyone would go home because it wasn't very easy to quickly provide clean water or clean drink for people to have for so many people. You couldn't just duck down to the bottle, as we would do. Uh, And there may have even been financial or legal obligations if this family couldn't provide for their guests. Uh, And this is where uh, we get to see the beginning of Mary and Jesus' relationship. See, what does Mary do in this situation? She feels for the host family. Maybe she even feels she's obligated to do something. But what does she do? Well, she goes to Jesus. And all she says is there... They don't have any wine. They've run out. Now, it's hard to know what she expected Jesus to do. At this point, Jesus hasn't been doing miracles yet. Uh, But maybe she just goes to him as the eldest son, as the man of her house. Uh, Then Jesus responds to her. I I wonder if you find it a little bit off-putting. Look at verse 4. He says, what is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus answered. Jesus asked. "Uh, My hour has not yet come. Now, when Jesus says woman, in that culture, apparently it wasn't a rude way of speaking like it might be in our culture. It would be more like addressing a woman as ma'am, or as they say in the British TV shows, mum, which I think sounds like mum, which is kind of weird. But anyway, it's ma'am. But I think what's striking is that he doesn't call her mother, does he? He says woman. It's almost like he's distancing herself from her and from this situation. And then he says that cryptic sentence, my hour... Has not yet come. What's going on there? I think there's two things going on. First, Jesus is showing us that he has a higher priority even than his mother. You see, all through John's gospel, Jesus keeps saying, I have come to do my Father's will, my Father in heaven, God, he is the one that I obey. I've come to reveal him. He and I are one. And he is just that first hint of that here. Jesus does the will of his heavenly Father first, even over the will of his earthly mother. And Jesus, he, he becomes an example to us in this. Yes, we love and honor our parents in all sorts of a way, all sorts of ways. We care for them, even into old age. God demands that. But that's it, as you see. But that's it, you see. Because we do it for God. We do it because He asks us to. We serve Him first. And most of of the time, that means listening to, honoring, respecting our parents. But sometimes it means we choose to honor God first. And it means we don't do what our parents might like or want because we need to put God and his priorities first. That needs wisdom. That needs great humility. But God and him come first. So Jesus is saying here, Mary, yes, I love you as my mother. I honor you, but my Father in heaven comes first and that's what he's talking about when he says that next phrase my hour has not yet come that's the second thing we see what is this hour that hasn't come again all through john's gospel we hear jesus talking about his hour or his time and he's talking about the hour the time when he is glorified and when is that it's the hour the time when jesus is lifted up when he's lifted up to die and then when he's lifted up, raised and seated at God's right hand. This is the hour that God the Father has sent his son into the world for. This is the hour that Jesus was born for. This is what Jesus' mind is set on, even over and above what his mother might want. So Jesus is saying, Mary, I haven't even begun my public ministry yet. My, glory, my hour of glory is still a way off. But he's saying, yes, I have disciples here. But I'm not here to make a big show, a big scene. My time is not yet. But Mary will have nothing of that. Uh, Look at verse 5. Do whatever he tells you, she says to the servants, the servants who are there waiting on the guests and serving the meal. Now, I don't know what exactly Mary had in mind for Jesus to do, but this leads us to the sign, to the miracle. See, Jesus' hour has not yet come. It's not time for a big show, but he still does what his mother asks. But he does it privately, not in public. Let's look at it. Look at verse 7. There were some big stone jars nearby. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, the servants. So they did. Verse 8, then he said to them, draw some water out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. And then, by the time that it reached the chief servant and he tasted it, it was no longer water. It was wine. Look at verse 9. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So do you see? Only the servants, only the servants and Jesus' disciples know what's going on here. The chief servant, the one in charge, didn't know where the wine came from. He didn't know that it was water transformed into wine. And so he calls the groom. And then, verse 10, look there. He says, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. It was the custom of the day at a feast or a wedding to serve the best wine first, and then the less good wine later on when everyone was a little bit too drunk to notice. But notice. The wine late in the party, this wine is spectacular. But no one knows where it's come from. Only the servants, only Jesus' disciples. This was a covert miracle of Jesus. His hour had not yet come, so it was under wraps. But that doesn't mean that it didn't have any impact. Because in verse 11, John describes the end result. Have a look at verse 11. This is the key verse. Read it with your own eyes, please. Jesus performed this sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That handful of disciples say five, give or take a few. See, they didn't just see a party trick on that day, they didn't just see a wedding day saved. What they saw was the glory of Jesus. They saw something of his majesty and his goodness. And his splendor. They saw something of God's glory in him. And what did it cause them to do? Believe in him. Because that's what you do when you see Jesus' glory. You acknowledge it. You put your trust in him. You believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Now the funny thing is that this miracle was done on the quiet. Only a few people saw his glory and believed in him that day. But here we have it written as one of the most famous miracles of Jesus in the most famous book in the world. And so many people today know this story. Uh, in our culture today, this miracle is often one of the only things that people know about Jesus, which is horrible, uh, but that's where our world is at. But here we have this now famous miracle, or more importantly, we have this sign. And so we have to ask, what does the sign point to you? What's the reality John wants to see? John wants us to see, God wants us to see. What does it show us, reveal to us about Jesus? How can we see his glory? That's what John is concerned about, that we see Jesus clearly and believe in him. So what does this sign point to? What does it show us about Jesus? There's a few things, uh, and here's a few things as we kind of finish up our time. The first things it shows us is what every miracle of Jesus shows us. It shows us that he is the one with power and authority. Jesus is the one who is one with the Father, and so he has the same power, the same authority as God the Father. He is the word made flesh, John says. All things were created through him, and so he has authority over his creation. Without even a word or a touch, we don't know how he did it, maybe with just a thought, he took plain old water and turned it into wine. Beautiful tasting wine. This sign points to his power and absolute authority. Do you see that? His glory? Do you believe in him? Are you amazed by Jesus, by his power and authority that he demonstrates? Don't take this miracle for granted. But also, don't just leave it there. Because the miracle is not just a mere party trick. And it doesn't just show us his power and authority. You actually misread the sign if that's all you see because the second thing is what John really wants to show us about this miracle. And that it's Jesus is the one who brings abundant and overflowing grace. See, how do we see this? There's a few things in the passage that help us to see this. We're going to look at the passage again. Keep your Bible open. Keep your mind switched on. The first question we need to ask is, why wine? What is the wine a symbol of? Well, a faithful Israelite would know from their Old Testament that wine, an abundance of wine, was a symbol of God's grace, of God's blessing. So in times of judgment, when God would judge his people, he brought famine on them and the grapes wouldn't grow and the wine would run out. But then he would promise to restore them and their vineyards would grow again and there would be an abundance of wine. So they would eat and drink and be glad and rejoice in God again. This comes up over and over again in the Old Testament. And we read it before in Isaiah. What did that say? It was looking forward to Jesus' promise of restoration, of salvation. And it pictured it like a feast of finely aged wine. Well, look at this other example in Amos 9. Amos says, Hear this, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper. And when the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. It's this beautiful poetic language. What's it saying? It's saying that you, God's people, will be so blessed. You will have so much wine that you won't know what to do with it. It will just kind of flow through the land and and drip from every uh, tree and every mountain. And so this sign points us to this. It's a picture of God's abundant grace and blessings and salvation that they've come in Jesus. Just look at some of the details of the story again. Jesus shows us this by what he does. Look at verse 6. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. So, here were these big water jars that were there for God's people to purify themselves, to cleanse themselves when uh, they came in or when they came out or when they ate. Uh, but now instead of water for, for, for cleansing rituals, well, now they're full of wine. And the point is this, whatever you used to do to be purified, to be cleansed before God, that's done and dusted now. See, any Old Testament law for ritual cleansing, forget it. Because how are you cleansed now? Jesus and any man-made rule that anyone might come up with for purifying or cleansing, because the Jews, they came up with lots of extra rules on top of the Old Testament for, for ritual washing. But what good are they? None. Why? Because Jesus, the purifier, is here. The old is gone and the new has come. And this is just one of those hints that points us forward to what Jesus would do to purify us, to cleanse us. He would die to take the punishment for our sin so we could go free, be forgiven and cleansed. So look at 1 John 1, seven on the screen. This is the same John who says these words. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses or purifies us from all sin. Do you see Jesus' glory? The one who purifies us of our sin. Abundant grace and blessing is found in him. Do you believe in him? But there's more glory. Look at verse 6 again. Look at the end. Uh, it says, Each jar contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus said. So they filled them to the brim. See, the incredible thing about this miracle is just how much wine Jesus made six huge jars filled to the brim, 20 or 30 gallons per jar. In our measurements, uh, that's a total of something like 600 litres of wine or 800 bottles. God is not a killjoy. Jesus is not stingy in any way. He pours out God's grace on us. It's abundant. It's overflowing. This is a symbol. God meets all our needs in and through Jesus. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every promise of God is yes in Jesus, his son. Do you see Jesus' glory, his generosity, his blessing, his abundant, overflowing grace? It's all in Jesus. Do you believe in him? But there's more glory. Do you remember verse 10? The chief servant said, but you have kept the fine wine until now. The blessing, the grace of God is like fine wine. It's not like cheap wine, the nasty stuff. It's not like box or cask wine. Sorry if you like drinking that. Uh, A goon bag is what we used to call it when I was younger. I don't know if it's still called that anymore. Uh, But what Jesus brings is not cask wine. It's not second class. It's the best that God has to offer us. Do you see Jesus' glory? Now is the time of restoration, of salvation. That's what this sign is saying. Jesus, the Restorer, the Saviour, is here. So what do you do when you see the glory of Jesus? You believe. The disciple of Jesus sees Jesus' glory and then believes in him. And so John here puts out the invitation. Do you want to become a disciple of Jesus? Do you want to have life, life eternal in his name? Do you want all the promised blessings of God? Do you see Jesus in all his glory? Then turn to him and believe. Believe that he is the Messiah, the King and the Son of God. And if you believe, you will be brought to life. You will have real and true spiritual life in Jesus' name. He is the only way. And then for the many of us who already believe this, who already recognize that we have life in Jesus, Do you recognize just what you have? Do you rejoice in his glory? Do Do you see and rejoice in Jesus' glory again that your sins are washed clean, you are purified? That you have God's overflowing and abundant grace in him? That you know the creator as your heavenly father? That you stand in all the blessings of all the promises of the Old Testament? They're fulfilled in him. That we're not waiting like God's Old Testament people for these things. We have them now. Now is the day of salvation. How can we not rejoice in Jesus for all of this? How can we not be gripped by him? How can we not love him and rejoice and revel in all his goodness and glory? Amen.